Um, so I hope you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Now notice what I called the sermon, avoiding heresy. <laughs> now, these... I expect a lot of questions after, and I'll be available next week. No, I... <laughs> this is a very complex passage of Scripture, and there are many translation problems, even for the most sophisticated scholars. Like, just take two words that are in your English Bibles, the word head and the word woman. Uh, the word woman can mean woman, it can be plural or, or not, women in general, or one woman in particular, it can mean wife. The word head can mean authority, it can mean your physical head, uh, it can mean somebody who's over somebody else in authority, I've, I guess I've already said that. Uh, it can mean a lot of things, but it matters the context. And so this is the time when you really want to have a pen ready to make some circles or some question marks, and I'm serious in saying that if you have questions after, I'm more than happy uh, to answer your questions. Uh, this is a passage uh, that I've never forgotten. I took a course from D.A. Carson. Dr. Carson is one of the best New Testament scholars in the world today, and uh, he's an amazing expert uh, in the Greek language. And he uses a phrase that is important to this passage. And the phrase is this. We must have some exegetical humility when interpreting difficult passages like 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 12, or 2 to, to 16. And the whole passage, now this is very important that you understand this. The whole passage is about what goes on during a church gathering. That's what it's about. The real problem was, and this is really important that you understand this, the distinction between the sexes being blurred. This is something that secular society has been trying to get rid of for centuries. It is a scheme of the devil to wipe out the differences between men and women. And chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 largely cover how to conduct oneself during the church gathered together like we are now. It's about spiritual gifts, and we'll study all about that in chapter 14, and the roles of men and women while serving in the church. We'll do that a little bit at this service, but uh, especially chapter 14, uh, we'll talk about that in some detail. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Now, here's what I think has happened. Paul has been... been speaking out to his amuenses, as, he's, as it's all being written down, that's like a secretary, and he's speaking out as he's answering questions that have come from the Corinthian church. He was a year and a half teaching in the Corinthian church, and he's answering all kinds of questions that they're writing to him, and he's also writing back some things uh, to them that he wants them to understand. And I think by the time we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, notice last week he basically said in verse 1 uh, that we were to imitate him the way he imitates Christ. That's the way he says it in a previous uh, chapter of 1 Corinthians, that we're to live our lives. He's saying to the Corinthian church the way Paul lives his life, and really that's for all of us. We're all to live our lives the way we want others and think others should live their lives, so we're living for Christ. 
So I think what he probably does here, he probably takes some time off, whether it's hours or a day, and he comes back and his mood is completely different. He's not using rhetoric anymore. He's, uh, he's basically calmed down. And he says this in verse 2. I praise you, Corinthians, for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions, plural. Now, now wait, this is important. Not just his teachings, but traditions common in other churches. So he says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I, the Apostle Paul, pass them, plural, on to you. Now, there may be a touch of sarcasm here as the previous three chapters demonstrated how little some in the Corinthian church were holding to anything Paul passed on to them. Next week, we'll learn much about the communion time during their church gatherings, and some of it is shocking. Plus, Paul has more he wants to say, but he was keeping the more for a future time. The very last verse in chapter 11, the last sentence in the last verse, I've got it on the screen, but you can look down at it, 1134, it says, Paul writes, or through his, through his secretary, and when I come... I will give further directions. In other words, this isn't all complete, and he's going to go and see them again and give further directions about how they should conduct themselves in all of the things he's about to teach. Now, Paul is pointing out <clears throat> that Christ is the redeemer of everyone, and he came into the world to redeem Adam and his progeny. God is the creator of Adam, the first man, the source of life for all to come. And then, thinking of Genesis, which we're learning, going to be learning a lot about in the Wednesday services over the weeks and months ahead, uh, the, the woman came from man. Adam was the source of life for Eve, and then Paul points back to the Godhead, to Jesus, it was the Father who sent the Son to die for our sins and rise from the dead, therefore procuring salvation for everyone who believes. The book of John believes is the number one word all through the book of John. How do you become a Christian? By believing in Jesus, by believing everything about Jesus, what he said, that he's God, that he's the only way to heaven. And in that sense then, <clears throat> God the Father is the source of everyone's salvation in Christ. And our church gatherings must represent that reality in appropriate ways. So now with that foundation, Paul explains why it is important for women... <laughs> I'm not feeling well. No, it's just... for women to, cover, to continue to cover their heads <laughs> when they pray and prophesy during a church gathering in Corinth. And it says nothing, by the way, about covering their heads otherwise. That's very important that you remember that. Paul starts off by talking about what is appropriate for the men in the assembly during a gathering. There was no dispute about this in Corinth at all. The men 
we're doing nothing wrong. And so it's as if Paul is saying, I'm paraphrasing, as you know, it would be inappropriate for a man. Now, that's a male, M-A-L-E, man. Isn't it sad that I have to even say that? But it's inappropriate for a man to cover his head when he is praying or prophesying during a meeting. And so verse 4, he says that. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, he's not talking about his physical head. He's talking about the fact that his head actually is Christ. And you should know a little bit of culture here. There was a Roman, uh, the Romans sort of had taken over in Corinth. It wasn't just a Greek place anymore. It was a Roman place. And all Romans, it's well known in Roman history, and uh, all Romans, especially the, the, the top politicians and all of that, the, the pharaohs and everybody, they, all of them covered their heads when they were uh, doing their religious thing in whatever kind of cult they were part of or God that they were sacrificing, sacrificing to, they all covered their heads. So Paul's saying to the Christian community in Corinth that every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. So we will study what prophecy is in chapter 14, but for now a definition would be this. So what is prophecy? Because you have to wonder, well, the women are prophesying. What does that mean? Prophecy is inspired speech aimed at edifying and encouraging the church gathered through the interpretation of Scripture. Actually, a simple way of putting it, the kind of prophecy being talked about here in the Corinthian letter, it's the ability to teach the Word of God accurately. And it was to be judged by the elders of the church who were all Men, but women clearly were allowed to prophesy as this passage makes clear. So Paul goes to the women now in verse 5. He says, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And it isn't talking about her hair or anything like that. It's talking about who her head is, and we'll, t- we'll see a lot more about that in a minute. It's a shame. It's, I'm sorry, it's the same <laughs> as having her head shaved. Now, it's enough to know that a woman, if she had her head shaved, an adulteress would have her head shaved. That would be part of the punishment. It was a shame to have your head shaved. So there was nobody would do that, you know, under any normal circumstances. So every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. It's a shame. Now, here's the problem. What does uncovered really mean? Or better, what was covering her head? And this is important. The truth is we really don't know specifically. There are many guesses. It was probably a shawl of some type. But it is certain that this did not mean her hair in any form. Her hair was not the covering. The covering was over her hair. So uh, that's easy to understand from this passage. Nevertheless, what was happening was something Paul approved of. He had handed down this tradition and is now explaining what is represented by how they worshipped. Now keep in mind this has nothing to do 
with how women dressed outside the church gathering. And so look at verse 6 now. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off, but if it is a disgrace to have her hair cut off, which it was, for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Remember now we're talking about during the church service. To shave her head would be a shame in that culture for the woman, married or not, Christian or not. And one reason for this tradition is so that there was no blurring of the differences between men and women. And I think you'll come to see that more and more. Again, we should point out that what Paul is referring to was handed down by Paul in the church in Corinth. These were traditions Paul had delivered to them. Today, we live in an entirely different culture and also have traditions. Good example, the Calvary, this is Calvary Chapel of Sarasota. The tradition of Calvary Chapel is that if you go to a Calvary Chapel anywhere in the world, almost every time you'll hear a sermon that will be verse by verse on the way through the Bible. That's a tradition of Calvary Chapels that you'll seldom hear not, not never, but seldom hear a topical uh, sermon in a Calvary chapel. It doesn't mean that it's, the topical sermons aren't okay. Spurgeon's the, my favorite preacher of all time, and he never preached verse by verse. It was always topics. And if you read a dozen of his sermons, you'll have learned so much about the Bible, it'll amaze you. But in the, our tradition is that we just go verse by verse. So many of you already knew that I was going to be teaching on these scriptures because you were here last week and you saw what come next. So the question that every woman wants answered is this. Do I have to wear some kind of covering on my head when attending a church service? And when I leave the church for home and work? Uh, Gordon Fee has written a significant commentary on 1 Corinthians. I say that because he's a conservative scholar and has struggled with everything written on this passage from the church fathers until today. He's, he's in heaven now. Here's a small quote from him. Although various Christian groups have fostered the practice of some sort of head covering for women in the assembled church, the difficulties with the practice are obvious. For Paul... The issue was directly tied to a cultural shame that scarcely prevails in most cultures today. I, I think that's clear. Now, I was saved originally into a church movement that demanded women wear head coverings when they came to any church service. It was called the Plymouth Brethren in Canada. It's all over the country. All of them disallowed women from participating in any way in the church service itself. Women were not even allowed to speak in the church. If in those days there was a piano and somebody says, uh, I want hymn 47, and so they play that hymn. If a woman wanted hymn 110, she'd have to whisper very quietly to her husband with her head covered, that's not 110, because she wasn't allowed to be speaking in the church. But in the Corinthian church, women were praying and prophesying doing, during certain gatherings without a head covering, and that was a problem. 
It was blurring the differences between men and women, between male and female. Now, it disturbed me personally that women were kept from any participation during the worship in the brethren congregations, although I learned a lot because the men really knew the word of God and I was taught a lot there. Nothing in this passage or any other puts such restrictions on women. So we're going to go back to Genesis. We're going to do a study in Genesis. I put it all on the screen, but it's going to be Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18. And we're going to learn a little bit about the background of all this. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for him to be alone. Now, what has happened is that Adam has named all these animals two by two. In doing all of that, he saw that they were going to multiply themselves, that there were differences in the animals that, uh, that, that made it possible for them to not create other animals, to birth other animals. And he had done this for all of these animals. And he was in charge of the animals, in charge of everything. God had put him in charge of everything. And he knew uh, that there was something wrong. He had to be thinking, there's something wrong here. I'm all alone. It doesn't necessarily mean lonely, although he probably was somewhat lonely, but he did have God, and he was speaking with God. And so God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever he, the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. And again, he saw their characteristics. But for Adam, who, who was in charge of everything, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God's, God caused the first uh, operation. So he had to be anesthetized. He caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place of flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, this next just words are wonderful words. They're just so full of joy. And, and to understand them, he's seeing the woman for the first time. There was no, they were naked, there's no shame, but he saw and knew right away that this woman, and anatomically and himself, like the animals, he saw how there were going to be other people in the world besides them. And when he saw her, he said, wow, that's in the Greek. Uh, <laughs> This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I mean, she's like me, he says. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of me, of man. That is why then, and this is, I find this a fascinating verse. I've, I had somebody ask me one time after a service, where, where does it say that you have to be married in the Bible? And I, I took them right here. That's why a man leaves his father or mother. Keep in mind, they had no father or mother. So they knew they were going to have children, and here's the, way that, here's the future. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And it's not just talking about the sexual relationship. That's obvious. It's talking about that they become one in their whole purpose in life and in their roles in life. So man, 
was made in God's image. Paul here is thinking about the account of the creation of man and points out that man made in God's image is the glory of God. And it's as if Paul is saying that man brings honor and praise to God by how he lives for God. That was part of the sermon last week. Therefore, a wife who loves her husband and submits to him in a biblical way brings honor and glory to her husband, which brings honor and glory to God. Godly men reflect God's image in the same way as godly women reflect the image of their husbands as they also are made in the image of God. So the woman's made in the image of God too. So uh, we're going to have a little bit of a marriage conference here right now. Married men. In marriage, men who are married like me, we are tasked by God to disciple our wives so they can become the willing helpers God made them to be. That's our task. And single men, you're tasked by God to be manly examples. That's really important, especially in this culture, to the single women who are part of the church. Godly men of purity and integrity and spiritual strength who protect women as a brother protects a sister. It is clear from the beginning of Genesis that God's original plan for humankind was that all men would have a wife who together glorify God in their relationship. That's why I like to make the point at wedding ceremonies that the act of marriage is a picture of God's love and care for all of humanity. Actually, the act of marriage is a picture of salvation for all of humanity. But we don't live in a perfect world, and therefore many men and women must learn to live for God without the immediate benefit of a wife or a husband. And yes, wives are the glory of their husbands, but women are also created to be the glory of God, not just men. They're totally equal here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created mankind, that means men and women, in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them, Male and female, he created them. So in the, from the creation account, we're equal in that way. Now remember, Paul taught that we all should be married unless God has given us the gift of celibacy. I, don't, I haven't seen too many men in my time praying for that particular gift. But it is a spiritual gift. And all men... And women are to be celibate until married. No sex. There is no sex before marriage. There's not to be any sex before marriage. But some are called to live for a good part of their life celibate for the sake of the ministry God has assigned them. God always has a purpose. So now, why should a man not cover his head? We'll start there. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head. That's what it said in verse 4. We already saw that. A man not to cover his head since he is, this is the male, M-A-L-E, man, he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, this is a relational statement, not a hierarchical statement. Both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, and especially in Genesis, it says that man is incomplete without the woman. And the woman is not inferior in any way to the man. 
The woman completes the man, is the glory of the man, so that the man can complete the woman like Christ completes the church by sacrificing himself. Jesus did this for us because we're the church. Now, clearly, this is talking about the marriage relationship. A wife brings glory to her husband. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 16 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, a grateful wife brings glory to her husband. And that's true. Now, still verse 7, but woman is the glory of man. For, verse 8, man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. It's talking about the Genesis account, Adam and Eve. Neither was man created for women, but woman for man. Now, God created Adam, and Eve came from that creation, from that man, to complete him, to be the glory of that man. There is nothing here about inferiority or even authority. It's a picture of mutual submission. Jesus submitted to the Father, even though in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are co-equal and, and eternal. But the Father loved the world, and Jesus submitted to the uh, Father's love of the world to come and die uh, for, uh, for our salvation. And then Jesus went back into, uh, to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit so that he, God the Holy Spirit, could be part of all of our lives. We all have the Holy Spirit. And together, uh, our Father God, our Savior Jesus, and our Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who teaches us things and opens our minds up to spiritual things, they all work uh, together. One's not more important than the other. They're all important. But they're willing, in this case, to have different roles. So uh, there's different roles outlined for men and women, especially in Ephesians 5. Now, here's something that you should write down. Submission in a marriage has to do with roles, not rules. That's really important. Submission in a marriage has to do with roles, not rules. A woman is to submit to a man in marriage to complete him so he can give up his life for her in the way Jesus gave up his life by submitting to the Father for us. That's a picture of marriage. Paul uses it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 28. Here's what he says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church, that's us, to make us holy, set apart for his purposes, cleansing us by the washing with water through the word of God and baptism and all of that, and to present us, the church, to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought, this isn't an option, to love their wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his Wife loves himself. We're to give ourselves away for the sake of our wives who completed us, and together we have meaning in life. Now, what woman wouldn't want to submit to that? A husband trying to make his wife even better than himself. 
That husband doesn't have to stamp his feet or yell or demand anything. And the wife who is submitting to her husband will see him flourish in ministry and in all he puts his hand to. He'll be called blessed as well as wife, his partner in ministry and in life. When Val's not at the church when I preach, she always sits right here in the second service, and I know that she's probably already out there uh, someplace. Uh, I find the task much more difficult. I don't like it when she's not with me when I'm doing ministry. When she takes pleasure in what I'm doing, my desire to please her and others increases. She is truly my helper. And in some ways, spiritually speaking, my superior. If you knew about her prayer life, you wouldn't believe it. That is the relationship between a man and a woman that God intended. I am incomplete without Val, and she completes me so I can minister to her and to others. We are one. And now a single person, well, then am I not complete? No, listen, if God has you single right now, uh, you can do whatever God's purpose is for you. He wants to use you. And, but when you get married, things change dramatically and wonderfully. And I must say that women, single women and widows, you really do complete our church. The influence and submission of women to biblical authority, which we'll talk a lot about in chapter 14, makes our church better and should be challenging uh, the single men to be better. John MacArthur even has something to say about this. He puts it this way. The authority and submission in each of these cases is based on love, not tyranny. Likewise, men in general and husbands in particular should exercise their authority in love, not in tyranny. They do not have authority because of greater worth or greater ability, but simply because God's wise design and loving will. Women respond in loving submission as they were designed to do. This is not a matter of relative dignity or worth, but of task and responsibility. That's a good statement. Now, verse 10 is the most difficult verse in the whole passage. And I've... (laughs) It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. Because of the angels. So verse 11, (laughs) no, I have to stop here. It is for this reason the woman ought to have authority, the word is pronounced exousia in the Greek language, over her own head because of the angels. So what is this all about? Because what does the head mean here? Uh, Does that mean her husband? Uh, what, What does authority over what? And what's with the angels? Well, I, th- I think the angels thing is fairly obvious. In the creation, there were angels present. And they saw all that God was doing. And they had a basic understanding, even as they wondered about why he was doing it the way he was doing it, as we learn in, uh, from Peter's uh, uh, writings, the apostle Peter. So they were there at the very beginning, and they saw all that God was doing. And angels are present all, when we're present like this, there's angels present here too. That is true. It even tells us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 14, it does it like a question. Uh, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Yes. 
And so there are, there's, there's, there's a, a, angels that we can't see right now watching this church service. And there are angels, that's why Paula said this, there were angels present. And not only that, but angels understand that what God is making of us is important to them because we've already talked about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul says, again with a question, with an obvious answer, do you not know that we Christians will judge angels? So they want to see how this is all developing. And Paul is saying it is for this reason that women ought to have authority over their own head. They ought to cover their heads in authority to the leadership of the church and to in authority to what God is doing. They have freedom, and they ought to exercise that freedom. That's the picture. Now, here's what Gordon Fee says. He says, in this case, Paul's argument will have taken a slight turn. Having affirmed that a man should not be covered, and by implication that a woman should be because she is man's glory, he turns for a moment to affirm the woman's freedom. But that is not the whole story. Since the woman is not independent of the man, he is also arguing that she properly exercised that freedom, that exousia I mentioned, by continuing the custom of being covered. But finally, again, we must admit that we cannot be sure. That's exegetical humility. Nevertheless, verse 11, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. We need each other. If someone were to ask me the question, uh, when you die, which won't be long from now, um, what, what do you, what, your legacy, what do you want to leave behind? One of the things I want to leave behind is that people said over and over again, sermon after sermon, I always knew when he was going to say it. He said that we need each other, that we must be together at the meetings together, and we must use, be using our spiritual gifts in the church, and we must be praying for one another. The world needs to see that. We need each other. God made us interdependent, not independent, and that's such an important thing to understand. And then in verse 12 it says, "For now listen to this, as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. Every one of us came from a woman, man. <laughs> that's a female woman. But everything comes from God. God is our authority. Yes, women have their roles. A man in marriage have their roles. Eve came from Adam, but since then all the Adams come from Eve's. Men and women are interdependent. One is not superior than the other. It takes both the husband and wife together to glorify God, and it takes all of us together to glorify God. We're glorifying God right now by meeting together and, and letting God speak to us. In Christ, there is no male or female Jew or Gentile, spiritually speaking. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, neither slave nor free. It doesn't matter how important in the world you are or supposedly unimportant, nor is there male or female. It doesn't make any difference which one you are because we are all one in Christ. That's the Messiah, and his name is Jesus.
That's important for us to understand. We are all necessary, and we all need each other. Different gifts and different roles, yes, but unless we work hard at the togetherness, we will not be able to truly impact the world for Christ. See how they love one another, Jesus said. By our love for each other, the world can judge the reality of our beliefs. That's what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. He prayed to the Father in the, in the prayers in John chapter 17. And he said that the world can judge whether we're for real by our love for one another. In the church, Paul made it clear that women were not to be elders, not to be elders, and have control over the men and spiritual things. That's very clear. But women still had the ability and permission, we see here, during a gathering of the church to pray and prophesy, and even, we'll see it later, speak in tongues and interpret. We'll study all that later. Just as much as men did, just as much, nevertheless, it is the men, the elders, who are responsible to test the prophecies. Women do not have that responsibility. Now, let me just say something about this. That doesn't mean if you're a woman here and I say something that you don't agree with or you don't think I'm right, then you need to confront me about it. You're, you're free to do that. And I need to explain myself so that you'll understand. But it's the elders in the church that are ultimately I'm responsible to, that if I'm not teaching uh, what the Bible says, the Orthodox gospel and all of that, then the elders, they have authority to come and say to me, uh, you're done or you need to change or something like that. But I'll tell you, there's been a lot of women over the years that have pointed out mistakes I've made in preaching uh, to my benefit and to everybody's benefit. So I just want you to understand that everyone was involved in the gathering of the church. That's the point. Now look at verse 13. Paul says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? That's the question. Now whatever else we take from this verse, it's important to notice she is not just sitting and soaking during the gathering, but participating. We had some women participating already uh, speaking out in the church uh, already during this service. They were up here singing, singing wonderful songs. They didn't have their head covered. Next week, they will. No, <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> no. No. But verse 14, Paul says, does not the very nature of things, now this is an important little phrase, the very nature of things. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. Now, I'm not I actually read a whole bunch of things about women's hair or men's hair that I had no idea before. I was watching a video, and so I decided to check it all out. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but man, women's hair grows faster than our hair. Uh, it's, there's, there's some kind of a little sort of DNA thing in the hair of the women that's more than the men have. Uh, it's more beautiful, looks better than men's hair, especially old men's hair, and, uh, <laughs> and all of that. Uh, but a woman's hair is the glory. God made women's hair different. <laughs> And it's, they're different in so many ways, it's amazing. And it normally, if you just... Uh, I read this thing where they had this contest. 
over a period of months uh, to see whose hair would grow the farthest in a certain amount of time between a man and several men and women, and the women won every time. And so, uh, you know, that's just the way God made us different. And so we're to maintain the difference. This is a, a, in different ways. So there's no, not one way that a woman should wear her hair, and not particularly. And when it says about men's hair being long, normally in, uh, in the Roman culture of that time, the men all cut their hair and kept it short. And, uh, uh, you know, I have friends that have, uh, male friends who have fairly long hair. Uh, I just don't say anything to them. <laughs> Anyhow, here's the point. The nature of things does not mean does not mean that nature requires women to have long hair and men to have short hair. That's not what it means. And I've already mentioned the Roman, the Greco-Roman culture. It was natural for men to have short hair to cut their hair and for women to let their hair grow long. So that was just normal culture. It was clearly a way to distinguish a man and a woman. Now here's the point. Now this is an important point. No blurring of roles. That's the point. And Paul says in the last verse, finally, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. In that day, it's the way all the churches practice. So this last sentence makes it clear that Paul is talking about a custom and not a command. One of the good things about Greek grammar is that if Paul was making this a command, we would know it. In fact, he is leaving it up to the church in Corinth to do what most other churches were doing. But he is not demanding or commanding. Gordon Fee, finally. First, the very fact that Paul argues in this way and that even at the end he does not give a commandment suggests that such a church custom, although not thereby unimportant for the Corinthians, is not to be raised to canon law. It's not a rule for all the churches today. Now, there's much we can learn from this passage. We should think carefully how we dress and act during our church gatherings. Verse chapter 14, we'll especially see that. Paul wanted that if a stranger come in, a non-believer come in, he wouldn't think we're all crazy. And we'll see that in chapter 14. So we can learn that we need, we need to be somewhat careful how we dress and act during our church gatherings. Otherwise, too, but during our church gatherings. But women do not have to wear a head covering when they prophesy or uh, pray. Uh, we have women uh, come here to, from the pregnancy center and give us a, an overview of what's happening. Just one that came to mind immediately as I am thinking here. And uh, that was fine. And we listened very carefully, and we learned some things, and, and it was wonderful that she didn't have to have her head covered. Now, it seems clear that at least part of the problem was a lack of differentiation between the sexes. When I was under Dr. Bill McRae's teaching well over 45 years ago, I remember him saying that unisex clothing was of the devil. This is over 45 years ago. I thought he was being fanatical. He went on to say that it would drive our culture toward the erasing of any sexual differences between men and women and lead to an increase in homosexuality. 
I was incredibly embarrassed by what he said. But now I see he was a prophet. When you open a media account these days, there are several choices when it comes to male or female. As a matter of fact, in Canada, there's 71 choices. And you say, well, how do you know that in Canada? Because of Dr. Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you know about this. Dr. Jordan Peterson's a Canadian psychologist. He's sold millions of books. His book, 12 Rules, every... If you're a young man or in this church and you've not read the 12 Rules of Jordan Peterson, you need to read them. It's not a Christian book, but he has a Christian worldview. And uh, they're worth reading. So what has happened is that he has been sanctioned by the Canadian government because he refuses to stop calling men, men, and women, women, and he and hers, he and her. And uh, as I said, there's 71 other ways to do it. By the way, there's a new one in the United States. Do you know about this one? It's in our military. In our military now, uh, the military person, they're going to get a medal. I read this directly, and I was going to just copy it down. It was so amazing to me. It was so crazy. I, I just almost screamed. So Sergeant Joe Blow has just done this miraculous thing, so we're giving this medal to themselves. I mean, I, I just like, it's, and it wasn't a joke. And I, I literally thought it was, it must be a joke. It's not a joke to themselves. So what's happened to Jordan Peterson? The Canadian government has said that he will lose his doctorate and his license if he doesn't go to reprogramming. So he's going to reprogramming. And the government decides whether the reprogramming has worked or not and whether he's going to be able to keep his professional status, which I don't think he really cares about. But he did promise American media, especially, that he will tell everything that they say to him, he'll tell us all. So I'm on the edge of my seat trying to figure out what they're going to say. Now, I mean, same-sex marriage is the law of the land. Men pretending to be women participate to their advantage in women's sports. Everything happening today regarding sexuality is directly contrary to the nature of things, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. Now, we all must look at our culture and ask ourselves if we're dressing and acting uh, to attract or please others or to glorify God. We must discern between passing culture and scriptural obedience. Jesus humbled himself before the Father to redeem the world. Adam humbled himself by submitting to the Son, and Eve humbled herself by submitting to her husband. I'm going to end with a quote from Charles Swindoll that really tells it all. He writes it this way. From the first link to the last, the chain of authority starts of God the Father and moves to God, the Son, man, and finally to the woman. This order isn't established to enforce relationships of superiority or inferiority. Rather, the order is meant to promote harmony and peace in the family relationship. The concept of order is consistent with God's pattern of establishing order throughout his creation. He ordered the heavenly bodies to function in harmony, ruling over day and night. He established the church, that's us, the church authority, resting in the faithful preachers and teachers of God's word. In the realm of human government, he assigned political authority to promote good and punish wickedness. 
They're not doing that anymore some places. And without these structures, he says in his last sentence, without these structures of headship, all these institutions would collapse in chaos. And that's happening. And we're the church. And there's more and more people and more and more pastors that are calling us together as people to say we need to stand up for what the biblical worldview is. We don't need to do marches or stuff or whatever, but I do, unless God leads you to do that. But we do need to live a biblical life. Jack Hibbs, many of you listen to Jack Hibbs, has made some strong statements of his church of thousands, and he has such a saying, he's not leaving California, he says, because we are going to stay here and let God use us to change California. Well, if you can change California, there's nothing else couldn't be changed. So... <laughs> Uh, so we must be the church, and, and we must do all we can to tell as many as we can about the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can change their views of life to a biblical view, which is much more satisfying than anything the world could ever offer us. So that's our challenge from, of all passages, a passage about whether women should wear head coverings or not. I can hardly wait till next week to see what they wear. Let's pray. Father... I just thank you so much for even this difficult passage of Scripture, and I thank you for a people who want to know all this, Father, so that we can live for you and understand why. You have put things together for a purpose so that we can have a life of joy and peace and that we can learn what it really means to love one another and that our society can prosper in incredible ways, and we see it as we read through your Bible uh, through the history of the Old Testament especially, how over and over again when the people turned to you, that you changed everything and made things prosper and just blessed people to no end. We need that today, Father. We're in a lot of trouble in our world, in our country. Please save us from it. We want Jesus to come again. We want the rapture to happen and all that. But, Father, there's still so many that I know who aren't Christians yet. So give us... Give us the ability to reach as many as possible until the trumpet sounds and the angel shouts and that we all join Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.